bonjour, hello and welcome, bienvenue. This is Marion Jones and this is City Breaks Bordeaux, Episode 7, Art in Bordeaux. As you'd expect in a massive regional centre, the heart of Aquitaine, the city of Bordeaux has lots to offer in terms of art and I went and had a look at three of the biggest, best-known galleries. So the beginning of the podcast, the first half probably, is going to be all about them. What is the difference between them? What can you see in each of them? What did I find that I especially liked? And then to round off, a little feature on perhaps the best-known Bordeaux artist made good, Rosa Bonheur. She was born in Bordeaux in 1822. She ploughed a difficult field for a woman in the 19th century. She made her name in the world of art, spent much of her working life in Paris, had works at many of the big exhibitions, sold works to the US, was generally definitely a figure to be reckoned with but who more or less disappeared throughout the 20th century until the very end when she was rediscovered. It would not be wrong, I feel, to blame, at least to some extent, misogyny, sexism, etc. But she's back. She's had a couple of big exhibitions recently in Paris. Her former home at Fontainebleau has opened as a museum. Definitely, definitely, we should all be talking about Rosa Bonheur. So, before that then, a tour of the Musée des Beaux-Arts, the Museum of Fine Arts, and the Musée d'Art Contemporain, the Modern Art Museum in Bordeaux, and something a little more unusual, the Bassin des Lumières, a different way to view art, of which there are one or two other examples in Paris and very possibly elsewhere in Europe. But this one, the Bordeaux version, is the biggest and probably the best, although I can't really say that without going to the others. Anyway, let's make a start then with the Musée des Beaux-Arts, or in English, the Fine Arts Museum. Founded in the 19th century, the place where you can see works from some of Europe's greatest painters right from the 15th to the 20th centuries, and where there is also, as you'd expect, a focus on local Bordeaux artists from various periods. Just going to run through a few examples of what you can find there, just really to give the idea of the range that's there. So, starting with the Renaissance... Some lovely paintings from the 16th century. A luminous scene of the Annunciation by an anonymous Flemish artist. There'll be pictures of most of the paintings that I mention on the website, so do go and have a look. Also from a similar era, Pietro Vanucci's Virgin and Child and Giorgio Vasari's Holy Family with the infants John the Baptist and St Francis. So yes, quite a few paintings with religious themes. But not only that, because they have a Jan Bruegel painting too, The Wedding Dance, which shows, I saw the description, shows the vices of humanity, food, drink, dance and music. You could equally call it the pleasures of humanity, I feel. Moving on a little bit into the 17th century, lots of Italian, French, Dutch, Spanish paintings. Again, religious themes, certainly. The Four Evangelists, St Sebastian another virgin and child, a picture called St. Anthony Adoring the Baby Jesus by the Spanish artist Murillo. This was an era known as the Golden Age, as for Dutch and Flemish painters, and there are quite a few works representing that, paintings commissioned by the growing middle class, the merchant class, landscapes sometimes, but often family portraits. There's one by a Flemish artist of a little group, two parents and their son, five or six years old, Quite Rembrandt-like, really, the dark clothing, the way the figures are lit. 
One painting I noted from the French Classicism School, a portrait of Philippe of Orléans, brother and lookalike of Louis XIV. And there are a couple of portraits by the British artist Joshua Reynolds. A later section covers realism from the 19th century, when suddenly artists began to paint different kinds of people, the working class, peasants. There's a painting called Un coin des Halles of a market woman in Halles Market in Paris. That's by Victor Gabriel Gilbert. There's another rather racy one called Black Stockings by Pierre Bonnard, a seedy sort of scene of a woman mending her lingerie, a bit of a state of disarray, one nipple on show. There's a work by Berthe Morisot, a painting of her nephew, one of the few Impressionist paintings here. Three pictures by a Bordeaux-born artist called Albert Marquet of Paris, one of the Quai Bourbon and two snowy Paris scenes of the Quai Canty and the Pont Neuf. Definitely a focus on Bordeaux artists, what they called on the website their strong regional identity. And, to quote a little more, works by artists from Bordeaux, such as the neoclassical artists Lacour and Taillasson, the symbolist Redon, the fauve artist Marquet, the art deco painter Dupin, the cubist Lot. So just really to give the idea that there's so many different schools represented here. To pick one or two artists from that list, Pierre Lacour was the first director of the Musée des Beaux-Arts. He was a painter as well. Played a central role, really, in the artistic life of the city for 40 years or more. And works by him that are here include the Port of Bordeaux and another one with another view of the Chartrand area. And there are other local artists who painted country scenes. The Ploughing Lesson, for example, by François-André Vincent, painted right at the end of the 18th century. And then from a century or so later than that, 1881, a painting called The Way Back from the Fair by Auguste-François Bonheur, a scene from the Gironde countryside. More town scenes by another artist who doesn't sound very French, being called Alfred Smith, but who is definitely labelled as having been born in Bordeaux, who painted several scenes of the quaysides in Bordeaux. Le Quai de la Grave Bordeaux, for example, and another one called Les Quais de Bordeaux. So it's one of those galleries where you can go on a little skate through art history, through all the centuries, pretty much shown in chronological order, and then with this extra section on the end for local artists. And a complete contrast, the Musée d'Art Contemporain, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Modern Art Museum. Opened, I think, in the 1980s and set in an unusual building, a former colonial goods warehouse. So somewhere with huge empty spaces. Quite a lively museum, I think. It's one of those that's labelled a Musée de France. So one of the museums that France is particularly proud of. It's got a permanent collection. It also has temporary exhibitions, cultural events, lots going on. And all sorts of surprises in store if you decide to wander around. Even embedded into the building itself. So for example, on the second floor, there's a terrace with a piece of art labelled the White Rock Line, which is 18 tonnes of white calcium rock, laid out in a very neat line, 40 metres long, 1.5 metres wide. I'm not quite sure why, but I do know that in a museum of modern art, you should expect the unexpected. And in the cafe, I found the unexpected, a piece of work called Garonne Mud Circles, which were, yes, two circles on walls opposite, facing each other, made from mud from the banks of the River Garonne. The collection generally starts around about the end of the 1960s 
comes right up to the present. Some paintings, yes, but lots of other things too, and a major influences including popular culture, graffiti, etc. You can browse the collection online, but just to give a few examples of things that particularly caught my attention, there was a display called Standby by Usama Tabti, who I think is probably North African origin, because the display consisted of the issue pages of library books from the French Institute in Algeria, and there must have been 15 or 20 of these as part of the display. And what the description pointed me towards was the fact that there were no stamps at all from the period 1994 to 99, that being the period of the Civil War. And this was a way that the artist had chosen of representing what he called le vide chronologique, so the, literally the chronological emptiness, the lack of issuing books in all that period. An unusual way of drawing people's attention to that important period of history in Algeria. Another work I've got a picture of, so look on to the website for that, is a work called Offside by Gabrielle Orozco. Basically a newspaper image of a sportsman, but which has been altered in various ways. So shapes have been cut out of it. It's been digitally retouched to show up the grain of the original newspaper, described in the introduction to it as a futuristic modification of a real-life image. Another work I enjoyed, even though it was very simple, it appealed to the wordsmith in me, it was just a massive sign, a white background, black lettering, four words in French, en vent du vent. So you can hear that that's a wordplay, and what it means translated into English is they sell, or maybe we sell, people sell, wind. I don't know whether it's some kind of ecological statement, or maybe it's a comment on the vacuousness of political comment these days. I couldn't tell you, but it's an example of the sort of thing you'll see on your way round, which might make you ask questions, promote some discussion with whoever you're with, make you think a little, which can't be a bad thing. And just one final example, an installation called The Shops Are Closed by Malachi Farrell. Fifteen white tubes hanging from the ceiling in two rows. I'll read you a little bit from the description. They are, quote, moving in a repetitive choreography to the sound of the motors, a metaphor for social control. The tubes swing back and forth in a beautiful coordinated dance, simulating the pantomime of people robbed of their decision-making capacity. So there you have it. I have to add that I've picked four out of several hundred pieces of work on display. I'm sure anybody else would have picked different ones. And really, if anything about what I've said intrigues you at all, what you need to do is go and have a look. And then the third institution which I've picked out is the Bassin des Lumières, a spectacular installation in, I think you could say, a very extraordinary setting. It is the largest digital art centre in the world, at least at the time when I'm recording, in the middle of 2023. It's an art space that's being created in the former submarine base from World War II. So for atmosphere, think concrete and steel, think darkness, think water. There are 11 different spaces. They call them cells in the guidebook, which I found rather disconcerting. They're all linked by an interior walkway, so you wander around and see what there is on offer. They host temporary exhibitions, concerts, shows, which to summarise consist of projecting colourful images onto these huge dark walls in dark spaces with sound effects and music. 
It's an immersive experience. You've got art displayed on three walls in front of you, one to the front and one to each side. And you've also got reflections of the artwork on the water. So you do feel quite surrounded by it. They've done a number of artists so far, Klimt, Paul Clay, Monet. There was a Dali exhibition set to the music of Pink Floyd. And when I went in summer 2022, there were two exhibitions on, one on the city of Venice and one featuring a Spanish artist. So the Venice one was described as a journey through the city of Venice, where you can go strolling around the Grand Canal, other canals, the alleys and squares, the buildings and churches. And the description continues then, quote, a 40-minute walk in search of an exceptional past. The visitor is immersed in Byzantine art and the golden mosaics of St. Mark's Basilica, in the masterpieces of Tintoretto, Bellini and Canaletto, and in the famous Mostra del Cinema, with photos of actresses and actors of Italian origin. So, lots of different images all coming together, lit up, large and colourful, on the walls. Sort of a visit through Venice, but one that takes in different time periods and presents you with all sorts of different aspects. Alongside that, they were running a second exhibition which featured just one artist, the Spanish artist Joachim Sorolla, and the blurb for that read as follows. Discover his entire oeuvre, from his regionalist interpretations of Spain, to his family portraits, landscapes and gardens, and the representations of the seaside, which made him internationally famous. So those two exhibitions, which were running at the same time, illustrate the different ways that they can approach the arts. So it can be about an artist, his or her works, but lots about the influences as well. Or it can be on a theme, in this case Venice. I think there's been a later one shown in Paris and possibly in Bordeaux as well, on the Art Deco movement, for example. I would definitely recommend trying this out. So then, three different galleries, three very different approaches to art. Art fans will probably go to all three. If that's not quite you and you've got lots of other things you want to see and do as well, I hope I've helped you decide perhaps which would be the most enjoyable for you personally. And then for the second half of the podcast, I felt it was a good opportunity to talk a little bit about one artist born in Bordeaux in the 19th century who made a big splash while she was alive, got rather forgotten through most of the 20th century, but has definitely made a comeback. And that is Rosa Bonheur. So here come then a few biographical details just to set her in context, a little bit of information about some of her best-known paintings. She was born in 1822. She was a precocious, artistically talented child whose father spotted this and encouraged her, for example, by taking her to the Louvre in Paris, where she was able to copy some of the paintings. And by the age of 19, she in fact had her first exhibition at the Paris Salon, so an early sign she had talent that was very much appreciated. And she gained a description as a peintre animalier, so a painter who specialised in depictions of animals. And really, art and animals were the two great loves of her life. She exhibited regularly at the Paris Salon. Perhaps the most famous painting of all was the one that she started in 1851, called Le Marché aux Chevaux, the Horse Fair. A massive work, four metres wide, which she'd spent 18 months preparing, doing numerous drawings of horses at the horse market near where she lived, and which was a triumph at the Paris Salon, such that it then went on tour to Britain and to America. Lots of reproductions were printed, 
so it became widely well known, and in the end it was bought by the American rail magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, who donated it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, where I believe it still hangs. Rosa lived in Montparnasse in Paris for a number of years, but eventually such was her wealth that she was able to buy a place called the Chateau du Bee, just a few miles from Fontainebleau, where she could lead a more countrified life as she wished. She spent the last 40 years of her life there, painting the animals in the forests around her home, collecting quite a selection of pets, including, for example, four lions. She was given the Légion d'honneur by the Empress Eugénie in 1865, the first woman actually ever to be so honoured, and so she was much talked about. So it's strange that after she died in 1899, she faded away rather, and it was only really towards the end of the 20th century that people began to talk about her again, at which point she became quite a feminist role model, as well as a respected artist. She was, in fact, quite unusual for a 19th century woman. She broke many of the rules of society. For example, she shunned marriage, she earned her own living, she enjoyed a long and relatively public happy lesbian relationship, she dressed absolutely as she pleased. She wore trousers, saying they were practical for the artist's studio, practical for the countryside where she liked to go and sketch and paint. This all sounds rather obvious today, but at the end of the 19th century, it made her absolutely stand out. And I'm afraid she attracted criticism too. People said things like, she painted like a man, whatever that's supposed to mean. And so, by the end of the 20th century, when people were beginning to talk about her again, she became quite an icon for the feminist movement. But most of all, it is, of course, for her work that she should be remembered. The style in which she painted animals was revolutionary for its time, very realistic and extraordinary attention to detail. Something she achieved, one, from her direct observations, the hours she spent at horse fairs and out in the countryside, and also, secondly, because of her talent. She could capture on paper what she'd learned from observing the animals. She had quite the menagerie at home, rabbits, squirrels, horses, lions. She spent a lot of time at horse fairs and in abattoirs. She dissected animals so that she got to know their anatomy. That reminds me of Michelangelo, who I believe used to break into mortuaries to dissect human bodies because he wanted to know exactly how they were put together. And her paintings are, how can I put it, not sentimental absolutely just trying to capture the spirit of the animal in front of her, their individuality, their feelings. So, examples. She's well known for a painting called King of the Forest, which is a majestic picture of a stag. She also painted something called An Injured Eagle, in which she really managed to capture the agony that the bird was feeling. Another well-known painting is called Wheat Threshing in the Camargue, with beautiful wild horses captured onto canvas. That painting is actually in the Bordeaux Gallery, so capturing the age-old agricultural practice of peasants treading wheat, but very much making the horses the focus. In the information panel next to the painting where it's displayed, it's described as a vibrant homage to the power and beauty of these semi-wild horses. And I might just make mention of a few other paintings which aren't on display here, but which give you an idea of her work. There's a lovely one called Two Rabbits, painted when she was only 19, which is, I think you could say, almost photographic in the detail in which it captures the rabbits. 
and yet somehow also manages to convey their mood. So they're shown huddling in a dark little corner, focused on some vegetable scraps in front of them. But you're very aware that they're also remaining alert to the idea that danger could come at any moment. Similarly, she painted a hunting dog, a picture called Barbaro, which I think was probably the dog's name, a beautiful creature in his prime, and yet also not very happy. She shows him chained to a wall, barely able to move, certainly not able to lie down, forced to just wait until his owner returns and unleashes him. And it's probably for her larger canvases that she's very well known, one called Ploughing in the Nivernay, for example, showing oxen at work in the fields close to Nevers in Burgundy, painted when she was still in her twenties, and shown at the Salon in Paris, and attracting much praise. Another agricultural scene, there are farmers ploughing a field, but again it's the animals that catch your attention, a pair of oxen trudging through thick clay soil, shoulders pushed forward in exertion, one glancing out at you so you could feel his resignation. One of the farmers is shown waving his whip in the air. It doesn't seem fanciful to say this artist's sympathies were with the oxen, not with the human masters. And then, of course, there's the horse fair, the Marché aux Chevaux, that I've already mentioned. Another work with humans and animals in it, but where, again, it's very much the horses on whom you focus jostling throng of horses being manhandled, two of them rearing up in the foreground, looking rebellious, very much making you look at the scene through their feelings, rather than that of the handlers. And all of this makes her really a very distinctive artist, where that mix of empathy and attention to detail and realistic portrayal of creatures all come together. So if you come across a Rosa Bonheur work somewhere else, do remember She started out in Bordeaux. She's a local girl. So that wraps up this episode. Just a couple of things to mention before finishing. Do go and have a look at the website if you have a moment. I'm spending quite a lot of time updating that and adding written material and photographs for all posts to date. That's still a bit of a work in progress, but the Bordeaux series, I'm doing the blog posts for that as the episodes come out. So for example, you could pop along and look at pictures of paintings that I've mentioned, which I'm sure will enhance your understanding of what I've been trying to say. But while you're about it, if you want to have a look at the other cities I've covered, I think to date there are blog posts for about the first six or seven in each city series, and more are being added every week. And just to nod to to the next episode, which I'm thinking of calling Food and Shopping, I'm planning to have a look at the sorts of foods you might want to try a taste of while you're in Bordeaux or the Gironde, perhaps an overview of some of the restaurants, of the sorts of goodies you might wish to buy as souvenirs to take home, and then a second section on shops and shopping. Bordeaux is quite a shopping centre, I would say. Lots of variety, lots of different areas doing different things. I'm going to try and convey that as well. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening today. I will be back soon. And I hope you will too. Alors, merci à vous et à bientôt.